there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom and making sense out of medical propaganda. The voice of health, freedom, and liberty, Robert Scott Bell. This is the week. Philadelphia is the place. If you had any trouble signing up, we'll tell you how to do that at Advanced Medicine Seminars. But it is Advanced Medicine Monday, which could keep on giving the gift of healing Friday and Saturday. It is right, the 21st and 22nd, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I look forward to seeing you there, as does my co-host here every Monday for Advanced Medicine Mondays, Dr. Rashid Bittar. Welcome, my friend. Hey, Robert. How are you? Doing well, doing well. I tell you, all the questions that people will get to ask in person there, we try to mirror and mimic that during the week when we do our one hour together each week. And I I think that's something we talked about off the air. We love it when we get the the feedback and the questions to come in here. So we're definitely going to be doing more of that. In fact, we had some great questions this hour, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, actually, the seminar is going to give us an opportunity far more effective, I believe, because a lot of times people lose momentum when the question is asked and you've got a limited amount of time to answer it. Right. But here the opportunity will be for two days, uh, two days for all the providers and at least one full day, possibly, you know, it may extend later depending on the level of interest, which I suspect is going to be quite great. But, you know, it's it's so much more when you have the opportunity to do so and present the information or answer the questions without any time constraints. I think that really makes it difficult to be able to effectively get across the information one wants to when you're constrained by time. Well, yeah, absolutely. And we we have limited time. We do a lot or as much as possible with it when we get together. And certainly it's exciting. There's a lot of positive, powerful adrenaline pumping because the information that just flows through, sometimes we shake our heads and go, wow, where did that come from? And in person, it ramps up even further. But we got a lot of great questions. But first, before we get into that, Dr. Batar, I understand as we were talking off the air about registration for the seminar, there was some kind of block on there. If people have tried, I want to let them know not to be frustrated that something was done behind the scenes so you can get plugged in. Yeah, actually, the software was designed to limit registration one week before in order to have a final number of attendees that would be present for the seminar. And so that feature was turned off so that it will still allow people to go ahead and register all the way up to the conference till Friday. So if you have tried to register and you've had a problem, please try so again, and you shouldn't have a problem anymore. Great. AdvancedMedicineSeminars.com. The link is up there at robertscadbell.com. And there's so much in the news. I covered a bunch yesterday we may be able to redo. But I thought the best way to start actually today would be one of the tougher of the medical questions that we get here. People send in the emails to us or sometimes they'll leave messages at the toll-free number. This is one related to things we've discussed, Dr. Batar, kidney function, renal function, which is really, really tough. And, of course, most in modern medicine don't get what you get and understand how to deal with this because much of their solutions are also kidney toxic. So if you want, I can uh, read into this uh, question from Sam. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, Robert. Okay, so Sam says, I have two health-related questions. First, I was wondering what you would suggest for preserving kidney function. He's 5'8", 135 pounds, very lean, and high serum creatinine. 
uh, you see there in this situation, we hear about these stories where the docs will, will give you this kind of information, but what do they tell patients typically to help them preserve kidney function? Well, Robert, that's an interesting question because, you know, I'm racking my brain and I don't know of anything that the traditional conventional doctors would recommend to, quote, preserve kidney function. Now, for me, it's a very, very easy question to answer the first portion of this question. Sam asks the the one about how would one preserve kidney function and the simplest way in my opinion, to preserve kidney function is to chelate, to remove the heavy metals out of the body. And what I've seen is in my clinical practice, people that were on borderline uh, nephropathies or people that had uh, early renal failure or even moderate, some occasionally severe that were already on dialysis even, we've been able to reverse their kidney function to a better state. So people that were on dialysis, getting dialysis three times a week, were then able to drop down to two or once a week. We've had people that were in moderate renal failure come back into normal BU and creatinine levels and and have no problems with the kidneys. But that was all using chelation. Now, as far as the traditional model, I have never heard of anybody talking about preserving kidney function. In fact, it was a preservation technique in, in conventional medicine then they would not be recommending the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, the steroids, and some of these other types of medications that cause a great deal of burden within the glomerular uh, filtration apparatus and the and, and the various components of the kidneys that have a tremendous load put on them when you end up taking some of these drugs. But the non-steroidals, as an example, the chronic use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, over-the-counter type of drugs, the Arutus and the Naproxen and even the Tylenols and the Motrins and all these drugs, they will slowly and steadily deteriorate kidney function until all of a sudden your BU and creatinine is going up and then the doctor says, uh-oh, you have early renal failure. Well, how often do you see docs acknowledging not only what you've just said about NSAIDs, but what about the heavy metal burden on the liver and the kidneys? Well, see, the, the heavy metal burden is not even recognized in conventional medicine as a issue. In other words, they will only recognize acute lead toxicity, and only lead toxicity, by the way, if you see it in blood serum. And the funny part about the whole cascade of how the metals hit the body, you will only see serum levels if you have an acute exposure. Chronic exposure isn't seen that way. And so the body has a way of compensating and trying to protect itself. It tries to shelve all these metals into the deepest reservoirs of the body, which over time causes problems. For instance, when you do an autopsy uh, or a, what's the word, Robert, when you pull up a person from a grave? Um, oh, ne- necropsy? <laughs> you want to talk about raising people from the dead, turning them into zombies? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> no, the word I was looking for it was exhume. When you exhume, exhume a- okay. <laughs> When you exhume a body, yeah, I don't want to get you caught up on that tangent again when we talked about I know, just in time for Halloween. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, it's funny, though, because we had two, you had two stories like that. Didn't we have two stories like that with the zombie-like people that were eating? We did, in fact. I mean, that was a thing about the, the, the I guess, the Hollywoodization of real life, uh, that fiction is not imitating, uh, uh, let's say, art, imitating life. Life is imitating art now because people are becoming zombies. Yeah, it was very, very strange that those stories are strange. But getting back on topic, the process of exhuming a body and then looking at the lead levels within bones shows really how this entire cascade works because lead levels in bones, that's the, that's the storage vector for lead as an example. Cadmium is going to be the lung parenchyma. There's different 
propensities for different metals to have for different tissues. So what you find is that when you exhume a body 20 years, you'll see sky high levels of lead. But actually, when you did serum levels in that same individual, there's no lead that's seen. So why is it mm-hmm. seen in the bone but not in the blood? Because the body is compensating and trying to store that metal or get rid of that metal. If it can't get rid of that metal out of the body, it stores it into the deep recesses where it's going to be less damaging, if you will. Yes, that's such an important concept to relate, Dr. Batar. It's something I learned learning in homeopathy, having to undo the damage from years, in fact, lifetime of exposure to many things, toxic pesticides as well as these heavy metals. And the fact of the matter is the body adapts like a Henselier adaptation syndrome discussion we learned so many years ago that if you're given this stuff and the exposure is chronic and constant, your body wants to survive, you want to survive, your body starts tucking the stuff away as deep as you said in the recesses it can go to keep the vital life-sustaining functions going as long as possible. And that's the case where you said lead in the bones, different metals go different places. Absolutely. In fact, when you said that, how does modern medicine deal with explaining the heavy metal aspect? Our DVD, Know Your Options, the medical series DVDs, we have one of them specifically on heavy metals. And the title of it, I think, summarizes everything. Heavy Metal Toxicity, the Hidden Killer. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it's one of the most endemic, if not the most endemic situation in the global society as far as healthcare issues is concerned. Uh, it would be very, very tough to distinguish between heavy metal toxicity and persistent organic pollutant toxicity, the first and second of the seven toxicities that I discuss in, in my book. But it's very difficult to discern which one is greater. I think they're constantly competing with each other. Yes. But the problem is that the heavy metals, as with the persistent organic pollutants, the same thing. The body is trying to, as you said, in order to survive, it stores it deep in the various compartments that it can it can store these things. One of the analogies that I make, Robert, is think of it as a fruitcake that your mother-in-law gave you. And, you know, either you hate fruitcake or you love fruitcake. But let's say that you hate fruitcake and fruitcakes have a way of like living, you know, or surviving for <laughs> years or something. So you yes. can find fruitcakes, you know, in your attic from like 30 years ago. Yes. I'm not sure quite how that works out. But regardless, think of it as a fruitcake that your mother-in-law gave you and you don't like fruitcake. And so you take it down to the basement and you slide it underneath one of the tables down there or one of the uh, armoires or something so that nobody finds it. And that's really what the body's doing is taking this, this, these metals that it doesn't want and it stores it and, and somewhere deep where it's not going to be seen. Now, when we start to mobilize these things, it's kind of like if you're trying to find the fruitcake, you're trying to take, find all the fruitcakes that have been stored throughout your house for the last <laughs> years, you know, you got to open up cabinets and closets and they've been well, tucked away everywhere. Right, you got tucked everywhere, so you end up making a big mess. And this is this is my explanation of the Herxheimer's response. Mm-hmm. That when you want a clean house, you got to open up the drawers and the closets and such, and pull pull everything out, and it's going to look like an absolute mess, and and it's going to be just terrible. But that's what the body's going through. It's a mess because when the body's detoxifying, this Herxheimer's reaction is essentially the opening of the closets and opening of these drawers and pulling up these uh, beds away from the walls and looking underneath and cleaning everything out. That's why it looks all messy. And then once everything gets cleaned up, you store everything in the right place. You take, get rid of the garbage, which would be the heavy metals, the persistent organic pollutants, any other types of toxicities. And that's one reason the person feels better. But during the phase of treatment, going from the current state to an improved state, you must go through that worsening. And that's that Herxheimer's response. That's the discovering of where the fruitcakes are and pulling them up. And I was thinking it, 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 in, along the way, you know, we we're trying to learn this and teach this. And you may end up going to some fruitcakes you call doctor <laughs> until you get to a doctor that actually understands what you just said. 
Yeah, I was thinking somebody I'm sure said, you know, I'm a fruitcake. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. I, you know, quack, fruitcake, whatever you want to call it. But the thing is that the analogy mm-hmm. brings it clearer, does it not? Oh, you know? absolutely. That's why I wanted, that's why I kind of posed the question in that way. I wanted you to kind of from the inside perspective, like we do with Advanced Medicine Mondays, is what would the, the regular doctors say? As you said, they'll, they'll not acknowledge anything unless they can detect serum blood levels of lead, for instance. And they'll say, okay, chelation for that. But other than that, they're going to say, it's not there. There's nothing there. We can't check it. It's not in your blood, not in your urine. So it doesn't exist out of sight, out of mind, like a little two-year-old. Well, actually, Robert, let me correct you in one little thing that you said. You said that if they see acute lead in the serum, then they'll treat it, and they'll say, yes, chelation. They will not say chelation. Oh, they will man. Call it, they will call it acute the treatment for acute lead toxicity using ethylenediamine tetracetic acid, which is chelation, by yeah, the way. But they won't but say it. Okay. They don't recognize that word. And this is one of the things that I didn't understand when I started getting into this form of medicine was that, wait a second, this treatment that they are – ostracizing doctors for and persecuting doctors for throughout the country is a treatment that's done in every single hospital, every single hospital, down to even the community hospitals, and it's widely utilized by every emergency room doctor. The only difference is they don't call it chelation. They don't put the essential B vitamins and all the uh, supportive stuff. It's just ethylenediamine tetracetic acid, and they charge you about 14 to 16 times what a doctor charges in his office and that's it. So they can, they'll charge you two grand for that same treatment, and they won't put all the stuff in it that we put in, in, a, in an office, and they don't, they don't call it chelation. That's the only difference between acute lead toxicity and what a doctor that does chelation in the office will do. Hmm. And so you know, the, the dichotomy of what we're dealing with, and when we start seeing that you, get, you have to pay you know, 10, 14, 15 times to get less of a treatment for something that you don't need to pay for something that, or that expensive. You follow what I'm saying? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. They don't, when you talk to a typical doctor and you talk about chelation, they, say, they think of it as coming out of voodoo thing. Right, but not- right, right. Well, exactly. Listen, we've got to talk more about this. A great Advanced Medicine Monday is happening. Remember, this is the Monday before, the Friday and Saturday, coming up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Check it out, advancedmedicineseminars.com. You can still sign up to attend. I look forward to seeing you, as does Dr. Batar. And when we come back, I want to talk about the man I met, 60-something-year-old man at the pool in the neighborhood the other day, and his discussion about mercury. He actually asked me about mercury detox. So we'll talk about that and more after this. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. Great Q&A happening right now on Advanced Medicine Monday here with Dr. Rashid Bittar. Once again, Philly's coming up. Please sign up and uh, meet us there. We'll look forward to seeing you. And Dr. Bittar, fascinating discussion about, you know, with the response from the question about how do I maintain kidney function? It just went beautifully where I was hoping it would go to go deeper into the understanding that most of modern medicine doesn't even acknowledge this idea, these ideas, even though they use methods. They won't call them the same thing or they'll ostracize you if you do, if you call it chelation instead of EDTA with the technical term and trying to pronounce it all out. Yet yesterday I met a guy uh, was in the 60s, a grandpa. He was very proud Navy guy, retired. And he said, listen, I'm I'm not on any drug. Well, I take a baby aspirin a day. That's it. I was like, well, that's pretty darn good for anybody in America now, considering four billion plus prescriptions are being written. But beyond that, then he admitted to me that he gets the flu shot every year. And I said, you know, the mercury. He says, well, how do you detoxify mercury? Now, I didn't go into heavy detail. I said, do you, do you know about cilantro, 
for instance. And I wasn't going to say that would take care of all of his problems. Just, you know, conversationally go, hey, do you know, he didn't even know what cilantro was. We got a long way to go, Dr. Batar. Well, we do. Um, Robert, a, a caution on, the, on cilantro. I love cilantro. But I think we've talked about this before. Yes, we have. Yeah, it's a natural chelator. So the problem is the quality of the cilantros that are out there in the market. Most of them are not grown in a controlled environment. They're not controlled in a laboratory environment. So if you get organically grown, I don't care if it's organically grown or non-organically grown, it's naturally concentrating mercury. And so the tendency is usually when you end up consuming a cilantro product, if it's not grown in a lab, you are going to be taking in more mercury because it has naturally done what it's supposed to do, which is out there in the natural environment world. Exactly. It's an important distinction. But, you know, in terms of the conversation, it was just kind of getting a sense of are people even aware of these things anymore? And he was completely devoid of that connection. I'd never even heard of the plant. So I know here's the thing. But, Robert, think about this for a second. Five years ago or 10 years ago. This guy would have never even asked you the question. That is true, yes. He, at the same time, he was getting the flu shot. He recognized, oh, my gosh, there's mercury. So he was only partway there, and yet right. he was only on a baby aspirin. But I said if he keeps up with the mercury in, 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 in flow like this, you know, again, the excretory burden is going to be there. He's already gaining weight, which I real referenced uh, as a point of this uh, constant or chronic exposure as well. Absolutely. And, you know, the first answer that I would give to somebody who said, well, how do I get rid of the mercury is my answer would be stop putting it in your body. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of exposures, a lot of various ways that people can be exposed. And we know that and the most common and the most uh, we talk a lot about amalgams. We talk a lot about vaccines. But in, in actuality, that's not the most common way of being exposed, although it is a universal exposure method. There is one greater exposure that you unfortunately cannot control, and that is the amount of mercury vapor that we're inhaling because of the combustion of fossil fuels out there. And so that is not – you may not be able to control that one, but you certainly can control the total amount going in by abstaining from the vaccines and abstaining from the dental amalgams, and that way the total load in our system is going to be decreased. But we're constantly all – bombarded with that poison and that's the second most toxic substance known to man according to the environmental protection agency yes yes indeed and so i i find it very interesting because i like when i get out there and chat with the people that aren't you know plugged into what we do all of the time to see where they're where they're at how much is known how much is not known so you're right there's a partial awareness but at the same point in time they they don't even know where to begin and, of course, if you've got good insurance coverage, that can be a dangerous thing because, as we know, most of the doctors are not trained this way. So it's a dilemma. And that's why, you know, Advanced Medicine Monday is, is happening, and that's why these Advanced Medicine seminars need to occur everywhere. Well, Robert, that's, um, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly why we want to do it. And hopefully the, the awareness will increase because that's really the ultimate goal of what we're doing is to increase the awareness and allowing people to become empowered with that information because once they become empowered with it, they become uh, no longer susceptible to becoming victims of the system. Yeah, exactly. The victimization of the American people. And there's been so much about recently, uh, we can't afford our medicine, we can't afford this. It's like, well, one, it's a monopoly. And two, it's, of course, we talk about economic issues as well, which we'll bring in into the seminar as well, because people need to understand the whole connection to everything, because health is not just purely physiological. It happens on all levels. Absolutely. In fact, the emotional, psychological component of this and, and the, the way that the body ends up uh, being bombarded with some of the negatives that we're dealing with, and we're not just talking about the toxicity aspects here that we can 
discuss from a medical realm, such as the persistent organic pollutants or the heavy metals or the opportunistics, but even from the non-medical or non-tangible perspective of the fourth toxicity, the energetics, for example, the fifth one, the emotional psychological one that we've all touched on during previous shows. So this, this entire gamut, the economic component of it for, as you just brought up, for example, the economic component of it is so necessary for people to understand when you have a clear conscious understanding of how the economic wheel is turning and how to make your body physically in in a susceptible state then allows your mind to no longer be as sharp and this is the way that as robert likes to call it the 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 uh, push is to make us all into sheeples mm-hmm I think that the economic and the health component together, you know, people would say, what does real estate or your value of your IRA or the stock market or the the political stances between the Democrats and the Republicans have to do with health? It, it, it has nothing to do. And yet it has everything to do with it. Because if there is this new world order taking place, and, uh, you know, we won't talk about all that stuff, but if, if the goal is to get this new world order and to get everybody to keep going the same direction, then what better way – than to make everybody physically weaker and more susceptible and then drive them all in the same direction. Oh, yeah. And I think that if you can't conceive of that kind of, uh, let's say, perspectives and diabolical plans among people on planet Earth, you need only read official stories by Liam Sheff, but also you need only look at the end result. Whether you believe it's intentional or not, at one level is irrelevant because you say, well, it's the end result. So who benefits? Look at that, step back and go, we got to get our put our house in order pronto. Absolutely. Because if we don't put our house in in order, then the eventuality of what we're talking about is exactly what they've been propagating the, you know, 2012, blah, blah, blah. And yet we have a much different perspective of that. Um, When I say we, I mean you and I. And and many, in fact, some of my friends that I met with this morning, we were talking about this very same uh, subject because I believe that the awareness is increasing. And, you know, we can talk about this, Robert, uh, Mm -hmm. if we want to at at the Advanced Medicine Seminars. But what people don't realize is this event that will start on the winter solstice of 2012, December 21st, 2012, which is supposed to be what everybody's talking about is the end of the world, you know, the Aztec, the Mayan, the Egyptian calendars, all these things culminate. But what they don't understand is that every 26,500 years, the entire gamut of planets within within the galaxy, uh, they're going to be aligned. Within our solar system will be aligned. And as those planets become aligned, the gravitational forces, the geopathic forces end up resonating at a much higher frequency. And I think what's what's happening is the increase in awareness that we've been talking about is all a function of that increased resonance that's occurring. And that's one reason people, if they get sick, they get sicker faster and people get healthy, they get healthier faster because – and that's one reason the heavy metal component is so important to get out because when you remineralize the body, your body's ability to resonate at that higher frequency along with as a planet's – planetary resonance is increasing, we're able to align ourselves better. Mm-hmm. And so this 2012, to me, we're culminating into the beginning of the golden age of universal consciousness where people are going to be more aware of what's happening and where we're going. And that's why it's so exciting for me. And there's no mistake that the advanced medicine seminars are starting now, just a few months before the winter solstice, because I've been talking about doing this for what, three oh, years, Robert? Yes, yeah, a long time. It's just a long time in the coming in. I'm so uh, I mean, just ecstatic. I mean, we're this week, people, it's this week, get to Philly. I, I can't say it clearly enough. <laughs> well, it's going to be very exciting, not only for for us, Robert, but I've been yeah. getting 
feedback from some of the other healthcare providers and even some of the patients that have scheduled saying that they're excited about it. So, uh, you know, the, the excitement builds upon itself and I'm very, very pleased and, and humbled that so many people are excited about it. And I've, I've got people that have contacted and said, sorry, I won't be able to be in Philadelphia, but I'm already scheduled for the Houston one, or I'm already scheduled for the Phoenix one, or I'm already scheduled for the San Francisco one. So it's really powerful that we were already scheduled all the way out to July 2013 with six events, and we have people scheduled for each one of those with the exception of the one in Chicago. Okay, well, that's coming too, uh, in, I believe, in June, but there's a lot more healing to go just today that we're going to fit in. In fact, another question, this relates to breast cancer. So when we come back from this break, I'm going to ask Dr. Bittar, Another pointed question about what the medical profession does and admits, admittedly in the question does versus what we would do differently. So stand by for that and more on the Robert Scott Bell Show right now with Dr. Rashi Bittar. Advanced Medicine Monday continues. The Robert Scott, the Bell, Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Rockin' the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Keep those questions coming in. You can always call 866-939-BELL, 866-939-2355. Or you can ask us in person at the Advanced Medicine Seminars coming up Friday for healthcare providers, Saturday for everybody. And I mean everybody. You will be rewarded richly for coming with the information we'll be able to get out to you. Lots of Q&A time unlike the time you might have limited with your doctors today. So this is going to be a very big event coming up Friday and Saturday, 21st, 22nd, and that is of September. That's right, this month. Check it out, advancedmedicineseminars.com. Dr. Bittar, you ready to do another Q&A coming through? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay, Liberty is a longtime listener. She always asks some great questions as well. This, is, this time she's referencing a friend who has been diagnosed with breast cancer, and she, she probably is right. She says mammograms may have had a lot to do with it. And they were going to do thermography in the future, but they talked about her biopsy and they said that they were, they didn't say they were inserting some kind of titanium clips. I'm not familiar with this. You might know about that. Uh, But she said, they said that she was stage one, low grade, slow growing, but they want her to do radiation therapy. What's going on here? Well, I like the way she put the question that they, Let's see. They also told her she needed didn't need chemo, but she should do radiation because that doesn't cause cancer, oh and shouldn't wait longer than a month for surgery. You know, I really like that statement because if somebody were to tell me that, I, I would tell them then you irradiate your breast. Yes, <laughs> happens. <laughs> um, you know, titanium clips are used. What they do is essentially when they do the biopsy, they have to mark where it's a three dimensional. A scenario that they're dealing with, but mm-hmm. when they take an image like a mammogram, it's only you know one dimensional. And so what they have to do is they have to try to position where the tumor is, and they take different angle shots. And so when they take the different angles, when they go in to do the biopsy, they put a clip, a titanium clip in there to mark where the area was. And then when they take the X-ray. Afterwards, when they do the mammogram after the, the biopsy or the, the radiograph after the biopsy, they can see where the lesion was and where the titanium clip is, which indicates where they got the sample to make sure it's in the same spot. Unfortunately, a lot of times it ends up, you know, being one of those, they're fishing around in there. And so it's kind of mucking everything up. And the titanium clips themselves, mm-hmm. um, titanium is relatively inert. It's dense, but it is something that, again, you've got a toxic area of the body. That's why the cancer started there. And now you're putting a greater burden of metal in there. It's something that's foreign. 
And anything foreign in the body is going to adhere bacteria and other types of pathogens. So, yes, that's a normal standard thing. It is highly, highly inadvisable from my perspective because you don't want to put something foreign in there. But then if you're going to be doing the biopsy, uh, they have to mark it somehow. Now, my opinion for the biopsy, actually, in you know, stage one yes. or stage, I don't, I don't believe in doing the biopsy. I'll tell you a horror story. This happened with a couple of my patients. I believe that what happens is that when you go in and you do a biopsy in a stage one, what you've really done is you've agitated that tumor uh, so that the treatment, subsequent treatment, whatever happens, you end up actually having a remnant of that cancer, which sometimes is referred to as the cancer stem cell. It is different than the normal cancer cells because they don't replicate the same way. They're actually a non-replicating portion of the cancer, but it allows for the cancer to essentially have its identity, if you will, yes. and allows it to perpetuate itself. So just like a stem cell is very adaptable and, and it can go pretty much anywhere in the body and become that particular cell line, whatever is needed. Well, the cancer stem cell is similar in the sense that even though it's not replicating, it can allow the replication of a new mutated form, and it can it, it can be, it's basically more resilient and it's more damaging on a long term perspective. So what happens is when the treatment starts, that stem cell, if the treatment is effective, the stem cell will basically protect itself, go into a state of dormancy, yes. and wait for a more opportune time in order to rear its head. And so for me, um, the reason I said this was a horror story, I've had a couple of patients that had had biopsies before they came to us. They came to a stage one, not a big deal, treated them, disease went, everything's fine for a year, year and a half, and then boom, the cancer comes back in the same area, but not in the same spot. And then we had to, to take them through treatment again. And of course, the recommendation then is, okay, you've already tried the alternative, it didn't work, it's back, you need to have a radical mastectomy. And <clears throat> typically, you know, fear overtakes a person, they want to do that. I've been very fortunate that the patients of mine, in fact, one of them right now here in, in uh, Charlotte from Australia, we just went through four more weeks of treatment and she had a shift. She you know, had the febrile response and the lesions have completely changed. They're, they're much bigger than they were, but much softer. Um, you know, it looks like she's got 10 years of her life. She, the reason that they're bigger is because the cancer expands as we're hitting it effectively and starts to fall apart. And uh, it's the reason it's softer is because the cancer is very dense as it's growing. But now as, it's, as it basically explodes, it's – think of a pumpkin that you shot with a shotgun. You videotape it and then watch it in slow motion. That pumpkin has to expand and swell up before it disintegrates into nothingness. And so uh, she's responded really well to treatment. But I believe that she wouldn't have had that recurrence had she never had the first initial biopsy because we went in and we messed around with it. Now – you know, I don't want anybody on the radio show to listen to this and go back to their oncologist or go and say, well, Dr. Batar said I shouldn't do a biopsy because you got to remember every circumstance is different. In these particular cases, there was no reason to have done the biopsy because it's very, very early, yes. very early stage. Now, if somebody has a stage three breast cancer or metastasized, you know, I won't treat a patient unless they've had a biopsy. Well, does that mean I'm contradicting myself? No, because I need some type of pathology to know what it is. But actually, it's also for medical legal reasons. And I'll tell you, for one other bigger reason, which I got tired of back in the late 90s where I treated patients with cancer. And then after they got better and they would come back, they would go to, back to the, their oncologist and say, look, here's my new path report and there's no cancer. And the oncologist would say, well, we don't really know if you really had cancer in the first place. Right. Yeah, It's a very important point that you bring up, Dr. Batar. A lot of 
the medicine that is practiced is what we call CYA. You have to protect yourself because then they'll also come back at you and say you treated improperly because we don't see that there's any evidence of it. So now you have to do something that may, in the big scheme of things, not be necessary to do. But in the scheme of things of functional, being able to continue to help people, you're almost forced to do it. Bingo. That's exactly right, Robert. And so, uh, in fact, you know that my last battle with the board, which cost me you know, well in the seven-digit seven numbers, uh, actually eight-digit numbers, we know that they had no basis to say uh, what they said because they were bringing me up on ethical charges. And we had five cancer patients, stage four, you know the whole story. I won't, re- I won't reiterate the whole thing, but basically five patients, all stage four, all given less than six months to live, and all of them were three years or more out from the cancer. And when they testified... Uh, as to the efficacy of our treatments, the medical board's response was that those those testimonies were irrelevant. Irrelevant, yes, I remember that. Hey, go back and listen. By the way, many, many hours of Advanced Medicine Mondays are available free for download through Natural News, through iTunes, as well as through MedicalRewind.com. We've got them linked up. And by all means, there's such tremendous wealth of information. And as I said, I remind everybody, I'm, we're inviting you for a reason. Come to Philadelphia this weekend. Uh, you'll get even more. But this is the kind of thing we've been able to give all the time. And I love being able to respond to the questions. I'm glad we, we had a couple. And, and, and Liberty's was great in that she acknowledged what you said, that, oh, well, we say that uh, radiation doesn't really cause cancer. And it's like, what, what, where do these people go to school? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, not so much going to school. I think it's the fact that they are one, well, the profession, our mm-hmm. profession is put up on that pedestal. We've had to go through the most astringent requirements to, of education to get to that level. And then we have this pompous attitude that we know everything and anybody who questions it, they're foolish. And we're, the, the medical hierarchy promotes that type of mentality. So we ourselves now put ourselves up on that pedestal that we have nothing else to learn. But when you look at it from a basic, fundamental, common sense, you know, neophyte perspective yeah. – Understand that, wait a second, if this radiation is damaging to a normal person, if every time I go in to get an extra of my broken toe or my broken finger and there's a sign on that door that says skull and crossbones in the olden days or now the universal triangular radiation sign, be, you know, caution, be careful, stay out, whatever it is, danger, you know, why do they have these signs by these areas where you get x-rays? Why do they say that's danger? Uh, I know it, there's such a cognitive dissonance there that exists, and it's a very dangerous one for anybody who subjects themselves and doesn't question these docs. And, and that's why, we're, again, we're blessed that we're able to do this because look at, look at the information getting out there. The, by the very feedback we're getting, these people are now questioning these, these things. And, and this woman evidently was told her tumor was a 2.5 centimeter, and now it was down to one centimeter. And that, it looked the way I'm reading it was without any real intervention. Well, it was with that. It was with the proper intervention of she was juicing, she was doing certain other things, but they didn't do any intervention traditionally. You're absolutely right. But you know, the point is, Robert, I, and I just want to finish this thought sure. because somebody you know is didn't get the the point that I was making. That universal danger sign on those X-ray doors is for a reason to caution a person about the radiation. And so the next question should be, well, how does radiation actually cause damage? Why is it dangerous for me to walk into this room? to get this x-ray of my toe or my finger, why should I be concerned about that? Why is this danger sign something that I should have in the forefront of my mind when I walk in there? Well, the reason is, is because it's going to damage you. What is the mechanism of damage? It's going to suppress your immune system. It's going to cause your DNA to mutate. It's going to cause a problem with immunosuppression. Okay, so now we know that aside, that radiation will cause immunosuppression. Now we come to the the issue of cancer. Cancer, by definition, is a state of immunosuppression. If you didn't have cancer, 
your immune system would be fine. If your immune system is damaged, doesn't mean you're going to get cancer, but the point is if you have cancer, you're defini- by definition, your immune system is damaged. So now you take a person that has cancer, meaning that they have a damaged immune system, and what do we do? We put them into the same environment that we say don't go into because it'll cause a damaged immune system, and we now further damage that damaged immune system, and now we say that it's not going to cause cancer, it's not going to cause damage. The entire damage of immunosuppression from radiation is why? Because it, why are they so concerned about it? Because it will cause cancer. Where do you go? Where do you go for help? One of the things we do here every week is uh, provide that information so you can go out and ask the right questions. And, and in fact, maybe you can go see Dr. Batar at his, uh, at his uh, clinic. We've got those links up as well. Or you can come see us at the Advanced Medicine Seminars. The series is starting up in Philadelphia this Friday, September 21st, and then 22nd on Saturday. We'll be there. Looking forward to seeing you. When we be back uh, from this break, we got a little bit more follow-up on Liberty's question of where you can go, what you can do. And more news to wrap it up here on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Dr. Rashid Bittar. Stand by. You're listening to the Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, you can get the information here on the show, or you can get it at Advanced Medicine Seminars in person, which we hope you do. But you can also get it 24 hours a day, seven days a week by having what? The internationally best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. Not just on the bookshelf, but out. use it as a reference. A lot of the things we talk about come straight out of the book. A lot of the stories we've shared, and some we haven't, are all there. And that's a gift to healing that definitely keeps on giving. Well, Robert, I appreciate you bringing up the book again. It has been a true blessing for for me, myself, and for many people that have read it. Yeah, and that's why I say the, the kind of thing that you go, well, you like what you hear, dude, like what you read. <laughs> that, that, that will, even when we're off the air, you'll be able to plug into some great things, and the book will be available also uh, at the uh, Philadelphia event coming up, Advanced Medicine Seminars, Friday and Saturday as well. So uh, this is going to be an exciting time to get this information out in every every media outlet we have the ability to tap into, including especially these books that are out there already. So in answering Liberty's question, we got a lot of great information out to her about her friend with breast cancer, Dr. Batar. She was also asking about uh, places to go, you know, almost total institutions. I've, t- I've met the people at Hippocrates. I know one of the, the docs there, and I think people do get a lot of good service there, a lot of good nutrition. They do massive detoxification and chelation as well. But feel it out. I always say it, tell people to pray on it. Get quiet, get silent, really pray on the, these things and get the information that will flow through on a deep, deep level because these are all big decisions as far as which way to go. Robert, I'm so glad you said that because that's something that I insist on every person that comes to my clinic that has cancer, that they must take at least 24 hours from the time of our initial consult till they start treatment in order to spend that 24-hour period in contemplation, in prayer, in meditation, in all of those or any one of those that they feel comfortable with and, and to ask those right questions because... I don't want to start treating anybody till they have actually been able to connect with their their higher self or connect with the universal consciousness, be able to communicate, and, and they will always get an answer. That's the one thing. People think that they won't get an answer, and I tell them, you will know, and honor whatever it is. If it is that you should come to the clinic or it's not that you should come to the clinic, that is the right answer for you because we're not right for everybody. And, and so I'm glad you said that because that is the right answer. It is the only answer hmm. that a person must allow guidance to come. And those 
that think that they don't get guidance or oh, God's never talking to me. Listen, if you've ever had deja vu, if you've ever had a sixth sense, if you've ever had an inkling of something, if you've ever uh, had that gut feeling, yes. these are all uh, these are all God speaking to you. You know, so yes, well said. Speak to me if you've ever said, seen, or experienced any of those things. Well said, and this is you know it's a hard lesson one, and we can learn it the hard way as as practitioners or healers. I've certainly learned it early on. When you your strong desire to help someone can overwhelm that sense of it, and they'll come to you, but they're not totally sure. They're not totally committed to the healing, and you do them a great disservice, even if you know that what you can do will help them until they're ready to take the right steps. You will not only waste your energy, but theirs, and it maybe end up making things worse along the way. That's a very, very true statement, and it's a very profound statement that I hope everybody listens to carefully what you just said, because sometimes... If a person is not ready to help and you start to try to help them and you, you know, they're only going to go halfway, you've actually done them a disservice because unless they're engaged fully, they're not going to get better. And your desire to try to help them overpowering their ability or desire to want to help themselves, it can never, that can never happen. It, their, their desire has to be the forefront aspect. And if you try to push it, the, what's going to end up happening, best case scenario, that they're going to go halfway you know, do something half-assed, excuse my French, yes. and the problem is that the cancer will now mutate, it will adapt and change and become resistant to that same therapy that would have worked had they gone 100% full force forward. Mm. Yeah, and, and they will they won't really fully understand anything or engage in what you tell them as well because they're only half there, then there's the half-listening aspect of it. And so when something happens that you know will happen, you can tell them it's going to happen. When they're not engaged in that, they will not understand it, and then they will end up blaming you in a way that's not appropriate. But because we pushed too hard, because we really wanted to help that little old lady across the street, even though she wasn't ready, nor did she maybe even want to go across the street. Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing that people have to want to help themselves first and foremost before you start to intervene and help them. And I'm not saying that uh, you shouldn't do that. I, I have met many people that have sent patients to us and helped those patients. It's been actually interesting to see the dynamic. I mm. just had a follow-up with a young Ethiopian girl who had osteosarcoma, and she came to me when she was about 14, and... Uh, just a little bit over 14, and uh, basically they wanted to amputate her leg when she had the cancer. She refused to. She had pulmonary metastasis. The cancer had spread to her lungs, and so then they stopped pushing to remove her leg because they said, okay, well, she's already spread now to her lungs, so there's no reason to take off her leg. Uh, but she basically told her parents in the hospital that, look, I don't understand. Everybody's walking around like I'm dead, and, and I'm not dead, and I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to leave. And uh, some family friends of theirs knew them and and she ended up in our clinic and i'm happy to say that her six-month prognosis that gave her she's only about uh, 18 months out of it so she's two years out now she's not only when she came to us, she was in a wheelchair she's not only not in a wheelchair she's out there walking she told me during a follow-up last week that she's now up to three quarters of a mile every day walking she had some pain in her legs that they did an mri for because they suspected it was a recurrence of the cancer but there's the pain's totally dissipated and they found a they called it a node, which they don't know what it is. And I told him, I said, that's a good thing because, you know, if you've got a lymph node there, it's draining, it's doing its job. Don't let anybody mess around with it. You just keep on working and doing the, your things. We measured her immune system. Everything looked good. But the reason I bring up this point is because her ability to come to our clinic would not have been there had a family member or a friend. I don't remember what the dynamics were, but yes. someone else helped to bring her to the clinic. And 
they saw her as being mentally there. Regardless of where her mother and father were, they saw this 14-year-old girl who was mentally ready to do the right thing. And she came to the office. We started treating her. And about two weeks into her treatment, her mother said to me, she said, Dr. Bittar, she pulled me aside. She said, Dr. Bittar, this is the first time I've seen my daughter actually smile in the last six months. And I said, well, get ready because she's going to be smiling a lot more. And, of course, she is, and she's doing wonderfully well. But, you know, in that type of scenario, there was somebody that ended up helping to facilitate this young girl's mm-hmm. desire to do the right thing. And that's the opposite extreme of what we were talking about earlier, where you facilitate something when the other person is not ready. Yes. And- you're doing it because you want to do it because you love that person and you want them to get better. But sometimes that person's not ready to get better. And so I think there's, a, there's that dichotomy. You see that one extreme versus the other extreme. And if you see the extreme where you can help somebody and they're ready to get better, then help them. But don't go out and try to help somebody who's not ready to be helped or who doesn't want to be helped. Yeah, I, I'm glad you shared that because there is a difference between holding your hand out and grabbing somebody, right? And you can sometimes find out by that initial approach to say, is this person open? Maybe you're not sure, but put that hand out, say something, ask a question, and you'll get a sense of whether you should go further. They'll welcome you, open you up, or you can tell the energy shuts down. And clearly, in the case of this 14-year-old, there was an opening. There was an energy shift that was sensed and that you've seen and her mother now acknowledges as the smiles are coming more frequently. So that's a subtlety that can only sometimes come through the experience of doing so, but I'm glad we can communicate it in whatever way possible for everyone out there. Well, absolutely, Robert. And now she's 16 and you know she's living a normal life. She's going to school. Everything's great. And, and, and that person, whoever saw that and was able to facilitate that, you know, they did something because they warmed their own heart and they, they loved this person and they wanted to help her. But I want people to remember that on the counterpoint that we just discussed when people aren't ready, what you're actually doing by helping somebody who's not ready, you're actually opening yourself up. Robert, you said yourself just now that, you know, you may end up becoming uh, the subject of their anger yes. if things work. Well, it's something even more than that. Think about this. You're opening your own energy field up to somebody who is not willing to do what it takes, and you're making yourself susceptible. You're becoming the victim because now when they don't get better, you even if they don't blame you, you're going to blame yourself. Are you going to be taking on their energy? You're taking right. on that same victim mentality. Yeah, their, their debt, which is not yours, now becomes yours. So that's a very important point, a high spiritual concept as well, but we're out of time to go further. So you, you want to learn more? Come on. Advanced Medicine Seminar is coming up Friday, Saturday in Philadelphia. Dr. Batar will be there. I'll be there, and I hope you'll be there as well. Check it all out online at robertscottbell.com. All of the archive links are there as well. Dr. Batar, thank you so much. We're going to see you real soon, and we can say in person that the power to heal is yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show. 